I can think of nothing better to do than talk about baptism, because baptism is as pure an, an exhibition of Christ's gospel that one can find. For in it, this is the place where God is at work, delivering the individual from sin, death, and hell, and grafting that person into the kingdom of God, forgiving them all their sins, and uh, making them, making that person his own dear child. Baptism is God's work on our behalf, where the merits of Christ, won through his suffering, death, and resurrection, are applied to us by grace, where we receive the gift of faith, where the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens us, sanctifies us, along with the whole Christian church on earth. Baptism is gospel in the purest sense. Five hundred years ago, Martin Luther would gather around the kitchen table with friends and theologians to talk about the Bible, theology, current events, and anything else. These discussions were called table talks. No matter what the question, the conversations always centered around Jesus and His promise of the forgiveness of sins. Table Talk Radio takes up the conversation, bringing the promise of the gospel to our lives. Stay tuned for Table Talk Radio. Well, what other radio program could you get Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Charles Finney, Billy Graham, and Joel Osteen all in the same studio, only on Table Talk Radio? You're listening to Table Talk Radio <laughs> with Evan Gigline and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. How are you? Fine, Evan. I was been before the show, though, getting ready for the show, digging through my couch cushions, looking for extra Table Talk Radio points, because apparently, <laughs> in kind of a, an act of exuberance in one of our previous shows, I offered a a hundred points to anyone who would be my friend on Facebook, and and I've just about run out of points. Which, by the way, is the only way he can get friends on Facebook. <laughs> well, we as so all five of our listeners asked to be my friend. It's great. <laughs> as I alluded to, we uh, are playing uh, answer the question as the history edition of, of that game. So we have those those six figures in in church history, and then also we are playing. Uh, name that theologian Hollywood Square style with our famed our famed celebrity Dr. Larry Rass, professor of history and academic dean at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rass, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, guys. It's great to be with you. Well, before we get things in full swing, we have to do our uh, theological buzzwords, and this is where we give uh, each other theological buzzwords, and the other host has to get it into the conversation some point during the show. And uh, Pastor Wolfmiller, my theological buzzword for you is transubstantiation, and this is the belief that uh, in the in the sacrament of the altar, uh, the elements, the the bread and wine, actually change into the body and blood of Christ, and uh, the the elements, the the bread and wine, actually cease to exist within uh, communion, and that is uh, traditionally held by the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Yes, and my buzzword for you is synergism. Uh, this is the idea that man and God work together or cooperate in salvation. So the buzzword for you is synergism. All right. Well, 500 Table Talk radio points on the table, uh, depending on how naturally that's worked in the conversation. Let's get started playing uh, this Table Talk radio game and name the theologian Hollywood Square style. And Pastor Wolfmiller will, will give Dr. Rass a, a quote, and then he will guess who the theologian is, and then I will uh, guess whether he's right or not. Boy, this is complicated. I, I think I've got it. I'm going to give three quotes now uh, to Dr. Rast, so you then uh, will have the opportunity to name who this theologian is. 
Uh, and then Evan will have to uh, determine if your guess is good. So three quotes are coming. I'll, I'll give you one at a time, and you can make a few comments uh, if you have any inclination who it might be. Here is the first quotation. First, we are not forbidden to seek perfection, but we are urged on toward it. And how desirable it would be if we were to achieve it. Second, I cheerfully concede that here in this life we shall not manage that. For the farther a godly Christian advances, the more he will see that he lacks. And so he will never be farther removed from the illusion of perfection than when he tries the hardest to reach it. That's your first quotation. That's my first quotation. Oh, I have a lot of inclinations on this one because perfectionism is something very near and dear to my heart. Uh, at first, I actually felt my heart strangely warmed uh, when I heard the question uh, because I thought, I thought, you know, uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, uh, had a had a doctrine of Christian perfection that uh, that he articulated in the 18th century. So in, in the mid 1700s, uh, uh, John Wesley was talking at great length about Christian for perfection and and. Uh, the whether or not it was a possibility to attain it in this life, um, Wesley himself never really didn't really say you could achieve that, and uh, but uh, or, or was at least a little bit unclear on whether it was an attainable matter uh, on this side of heaven. Uh, but the so uh, so the the statement within the the quotation uh, about the difficulties in attaining that made me think maybe that is a little bit of Wesley at work here. Well, one guy I know it's certainly not who is also a perfectionist is my good friend Charles Finney. Um, because <laughs> he he knows you can attain this thing and uh, uh and uh, according to his uh, doctrine of the will the uh, uh the the moral necessity of uh, God's law carries within it the imperative uh, that allows one to achieve its end. Uh, so, so for Finney, there's a stronger sense of uh, moving towards that perfection than there is uh, than there is in, in uh, John Wesley. So I, I don't think Finney have, would. You have two more quotes now. To I know, I know. I don't think Finney would cop out as quickly on that one. So I'm going to have to say in the end, I know who this is. Uh, it's Philip Jakob Spainer. <laughs> and uh, oh, man. Because, he doesn't even need two more quotes from the guy. Because oh. uh, I I I know this part this book. I use that his Pia Desideria for uh, nightly devotion. So I've gone through this text any number of times. And uh, uh the result is that I'm quite confident on, on this one. So that's my that's where I'm coming down. Okay, well, do you want to well, give, I'm give you? I'm going to give you. Give two me the other bit, then I'll know sure. if I'm right or wrong. I think I'm right, but give me the other one. That's right. That's right. Uh, to this end, the word of God is the powerful means, since faith must be enkindled through the gospel, and the law provides the rules for good works <laughs> and many wonderful impulses to attain them. The more at home the word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think what I, do you, uh, comment on that th- theologically. This idea that the law provides impulses to attain good works—that is, yeah, very good. The uh, um, that really is one of the one of the distinguishing characteristics of uh, Lutheran orthodoxy and Lutheran Pietism. It's one of the things that creates the divide between the two, because uh, 
for Lutheran orthodoxy, basing its conclusions on the Scripture, the law does not provide uh, the impetus or the means for achieving uh, spiritually good works. Rather, as the Formula Concord outlines it, it, it simply acts as a teacher. It instructs us as to what the will of God is. Because left to ourselves, without that instruction, we'll, we'll come up with all kinds of goofy ways of trying to serve God rather than serving Him in the way He desires to be served. That's, uh, that's uh, straightforward stuff from the formula. But later on, the pietists were convinced that uh, Lutheran Orthodoxy hadn't sufficiently achieved that end, shall we say. That is to say, uh, its cheap grace produced a life that wasn't uh, uh, particularly characterized by keeping the will of God at all. That is to say, uh, the, the crass way the pietists criticized the Orthodox was to say uh, they believed that one should sin so that grace might abound more, uh, and instead said the way in which to instill a, a sense of obligation in the believer uh, towards achieving the revealed will of God in, uh, in his law was simply to preach that law, to tell the person this is what you need to do. And uh, uh, so for uh, the Lutheran pietists, the idea of the law uh, generating or motivating one to good works became uh, one of the distinguishing characteristics of that particular movement. All right, you have okay, uh, one more one quotation. More yeah. All right. Our frequently mentioned Dr. Luther would suggest another means, which is altogether compatible with the first. This second proposal is the establishment and diligent exercise of the spiritual priesthood. Nobody can read Luther's writing with some care without observing how earnestly the sainted man advocated the spiritual priesthood, according to which not only ministers but all Christians are made priests by their Savior, are anointed by the Holy Spirit, are dedicated to perform spiritual priestly acts, Peter was not addressing preachers alone when he wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Now I know I'm right. <laughs> that second one, I started wobbling a little bit on that quotation, but, but this one has uh, confirmed me in my suspicions that it is our friend Philip. Uh, Spainer's uh, intent was to, uh, was to rediscover, recapture, uh, an emphasis on the uh, priesthood of all believers, or as you as you heard it there in that quote, on the spiritual priesthood, which uh, which he believed Luther had recovered in the early Reformation period, but then again, uh, during the period of Lutheran orthodoxy, say 1580 to 1650 or so, had become obscured uh, by the uh, by the Lutheran orthodox teachers, and in fact had led to a kind of New Romanism, if you will, that emphasized the office of pastor, the office of uh, the public ministry, at the expense of the spiritual priesthood, the geistlichte priestertum, as he would call it. And so, uh, one of the one of the points in his Pia Desiderio to, towards the reform of the church and the reinvigorating of the church was to underscore. Uh, what is typically called the priesthood of all believers, but what he normally would refer to as the spiritual priesthood. All right. Well, based upon Dr. Rass' laughter of confidence, I am going to uh, confirm that he is correct. Is it? Is it uh, Spainer? It is. Pia Desiderio. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Uh, you are right. And, Evan, for you then, enjoying the spoils of Dr. Rast's knowledge here, you get 200 points. All right. Oh, good. Name I mean, once you put out that kind of perfectionism, I just gravitate towards that like a moth towards a light. Well, we have one more round of... Of name that theologian right after this, uh, after this quick break. We're right back on Table Talk Radio with Dr. Rass, a professor of historical theology and academic dean at, Con- at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'll be right back. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Serious Theology. Seriously Bad Hosts. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, playing Name That Theologian Hollywood Square Style, and I'm standing at 200 points. Thank you, Dr. Rath. You are quite welcome. Glad I could help. <laughs> Let's see. All of our listeners out there is agonizing over the fact that we constantly are trying to make church history exciting and constantly failing at the attempt. This is perhaps the first time where we're getting close, anyways. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it takes Dr. Rast to put the... The fun in church history. I'm I'm going to be uh, selling a line of T-shirts soon that say, Church history is fun. (laughs) Don't forget it. (laughs) (laughs) You can find that on our website. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right next to it, don't we have the shirt that you don't, I don't want to be a Gnostic. And then have you put the shirt up there that says, Infused Grace should be a banned substance? No, I haven't yet. Great stuff. <laughs> I think that's funny. I'm the only one that thinks it's funny, but I still do think it's funny. Well, you're okay, we have our se- your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our second, uh, our second uh, uh, name that theologian or theologian to be named, and I'll give you the first quotation. Now, this is not going to be so obvious. Oh, I'm wait. Thinking. Okay, now I'm going to get uh, it wrong. <laughs> here's the here's the first one. This is a I'm quoting from one particular sermon, and here's the beginning. Beloved in the Lord. When Holy Scripture teaches us that we should once more be renewed by Christ to the state that we lost through the fall into sin, this word, renewal, takes in a very broad concept that includes all of these parts, call, illumination, rebirth, justification, union with God, and sanctification. And when these parts of the entire work, which is commonly called renewal of the image of God, are mentioned, then the last part namely sanctification, has a special significance. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot in that quote. Mm. There is mm. a lot in that quote. I mean, the two things that jump out right away uh, are the uh, idea of union with Christ and uh, obviously renewal of the image of God. But then also, uh, these are the three three themes I wrote down: the, the emphasis on sanctification. Hmm. <laughs> now, obviously, uh, the the uh, union with Christ is uh, is a is a prevalent theme within Lutheran theology. But it came to be emphasized I, I came to be emphasized in the 17th century, particularly uh, later on by uh, by several people. Uh, certainly, Spainer would have been one of them, but this doesn't sound like Spainer to me. Uh, but other folks who uh, who argued that the 
orthodox emphasis on the external Word of God and the uh, administered sacraments put the put the biblical teaching of the union with Christ uh, in the background at best and and perhaps discarded it at worst. So hearing this sort of emphasis is starting to point me in the some directions, but I'm not quite sure if I'm there yet. Then, of course, once you talk about the, the renewal of the image of God, there's a little bit different uh, stress also in 17th century Lutheranism, uh, the kind of personalistic, individualistic, experiential character of pietism coming out once again. The question is, how early is it? Is it an early or a late emphasis? And then finally, the sanctification point, obviously, uh, uh, that's a strong theme in uh, Lutheran Pietism generally. So now, now you're talking right. a lot about Pietism. Would yes, you, I'm I just am. as we're going along here, <laughs> could you give a kind of a brief definition of Pietism sure. so that? Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good question. The um, Lutheran Pietism is typically dated from the publication of uh, Spanner's little book Pia Desideria or Pia Desideria. You'll hear it pronounced both ways, which was a uh, originally a uh, preface, if you will, to a to a collection of Johann Arndt's sermons that was published uh, uh, in the year 1675. Later on, it came became a standalone uh, little piece of its own, a little pamphlet of its own. And what what he emphasized in there were a couple of things actually. First off, uh, the book is is set up in such a fashion as to uh, ask the question: uh, What's wrong with the church? Why aren't things better? Uh, in the church in our time. And there, Spainer castigated uh, the clergy, the nobility, and also the lay people. Everybody roundly got criticized in this, but particularly the clergy. Then he asks the question whether things can be improved and answers it yes, and then gives a program for uh, the way to do that. Uh, so if you will, Spainer articulates a, a, a program for reforming the church um, based in many ways on the earlier work of Johann Arndt, his emphasis on uh, uh, union with Christ and also uh, the necessity of emphasizing sanctification. And what you end up with, then, is a, is a movement that stresses uh, several things. On the one uh, first, uh, the necessity of a real conversion experience on the part of the individual. Uh, Spainer never denied baptismal regeneration, that baptism forgave sins and brought a person into the church, but he, he believed, it appears, that something needed to complete that act. Uh, and that, was, uh, that would be uh, the true experience of conversion. Uh, then, uh, because of that strong emphasis on the individual's conversion, we do end up with uh, a lot of focus on the individual himself or herself uh, and their personal experience. So the experientialism of uh, the individual really became a strong theme in this. Uh, and then finally, uh, the stress on the sanctified life, the necessity of living a moral life that could, if you will, quantify that conversion experience. Uh, it's one thing to say you're converted, in other words. It's another thing to be able to show it in word and in deed. Uh, so here, uh, if you will, the old dictum, actions speak louder than words really finds an application. So the, those several things there, an emphasis on conversion, and an emphasis on individual experience, and uh, the necessity of a sanctified moral life as the, the proof of, of true conversion and experience really 
kind of characterize in, in a simple way uh, the Pietist movement. And the tricky thing here is that these are uh, matters of emphases, a mm-hmm. matter of stress. You Good. said that word a lot, stress, so that it's, it's not that the Pietists would deny the doctrine of justification, but they would simply emphasize sanctification over justification. Mm-hmm. Something. Mm-hmm. Or it's not that they would deny that Christ's death is for us, but, but they would emphasize the union with Christ, Christ in us, right. over the Christ for us. So right. it's a matter of, yeah. it's a dangerous sort of matter of emphasis. Right. And, and you heard in this last quote then the emphasis on union with Christ and sanctification which you said gave you the hint that it was pietism, again, talking. I'll give you another quote to okay. maybe help you anyway here. Quote number two. Now, that is the true intention of the heart that everyone must find in himself who devotes himself to renewal. If this fundamental intention does not exist, and consequently the person has not truly consecrated and offered himself to the Lord, he is not a righteous Christian. Mm. And if he deeply examines himself, he will see that he is nothing other than a hypocrite. <laughs> I'm glad you're playing this game. Not oh not man, this is this <laughs> is tougher. This is more difficult. I'm, I'm I have three three individuals in mind at this point. I'm, I, should I say them yet, or do you want me? Sure, to sure, sure. Uh, the the three I'm thinking of are Johann Arndt, who's the kind of the proto-pietist, the author of the books True Christianity that had such an influence on Spainer in, in kind of defining the movement itself uh, that later emerged in the uh, 1600s. Uh, secondly, uh, August Hermann Franke, Spainer's student, who put a lot of emphasis on the necessity of a locatable conversion experience, so something you could name and date, if you will, and, uh, and also emphasized the necessity of the of a willful human act to give the word its efficacy. And then finally, um, uh, and here I'm a little torn in my mind, uh, thinking about uh, uh, Johann Albrecht Bengel, who uh, also has some of these themes, though he usually, he frequently will couch them in more kind of biblical terms and uh, uh, kind of millennialistic terms as well. So I'm, uh, that's, I'm kind of floating around between those three at this point in time which is a pretty significant historical range. Uh, Arndt's born in 1555, and I'm uh, trying to remember when Bengal dies. It's sometime in the 1740s. So we're looking at almost a 200-year span uh, with those three figures of mine. So I think I'm going to have to go to the third quote before I actually make, take the plunge. Well, here Not it is. that this I'm is... advocating immersion or anything like that. <laughs> here is the third quotation. Okay. This is the, the close of the sermon, and it is a prayer. O Lord, give us the powers of your Holy Spirit, such that we may be truly metamorphosed and so reshaped in our hearts, Jesus, that you establish your own form within us. And henceforth we do not live, but you live in us. May we actively and powerfully experience, without ceasing, in the ground of our hearts, the godly life that you lead, sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God. Metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. Yeah. Yeah. Is that another made up word? Is that a real <laughs> word? <laughs> Sounds like somebody trying to. They probably found one instance of it in a dictionary, uh, and, <laughs> and that became what they ran with. Yeah. Now, here's. I think I got it. I think I got it. No, we'll see. Here, the stress on the heart in the last two quotations 
that you gave is uh, an indicator because uh, oh well obviously uh, one of one other characteristic of pietism is an emphasis on heart religion as opposed to head religion uh, they're they're critical of the so-called Lutheran Orthodox for what they believe is simply reducing Christian faith to the affirmation of doctrinal propositions. In other words, if you get the doctrine right and affirm that, then you have faith. And, and the pietists say, no, there's got to be something more than that. It's got to be conversion. It's got to be a metamorphosis. Uh, uh, and that takes place in the heart. And the manner in which the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit penetrates to the heart uh, and transforms an individual is, uh, is kind of the miracle and the mystery simultaneously of conversion in their way of thinking. You get a little bit of that in Johann Arndt uh, with his talk, with his stress on the, uh, the union with Christ. But where you hear that much more strongly uh, is in August Hermann Franke. So that's where I'm going to come down. All right, and I need to decide whether I'm going to agree or disagree, and I'm going to take a commercial break to do it. So we're we'll right back on Table Talk <laughs> good, Radio. I'll good move. This game. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more fun than you've ever had with church history. <laughs> right after this break. No online petition necessary. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. O Lord, give us the powers of your Holy Spirit such that we may truly be metamorphosed and so reshapen in our hearts, Jesus, that you establish your own form within us, and henceforth we do not live, but you live in us. Yeah, I was just thinking, I almost picked metamorphosed as your theological buzzer, and I was glad I didn't, because (laughs) you would have nailed it right there. <laughs> and uh, we doc- have the guest that that is August Herman Franca. Dr. Rast has guest August Herman Franca for that. And you, Evan, have to decide if that is the theologian that spoke those words or not. You know, I was the whole time. You know, when when Dr. Rast was was fumbling around with these theologians, I was thinking uh, Franca the whole time. So I'm going to agree with Dr. Rast. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Uh-huh. It is August Hermann Frank. Boy, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that's terrific. <laughs> well, don't worry, Doctor. The, the reason why maybe these theologians are so important is because uh, is really they uh, 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 define the modern religion that we have today. There's a there's a pietism that's just incessant in American religion yep. that is emphasizing growth in in spirituality or growth in good works over uh, right doctrine. And uh, it's important that we know where this comes from and, and that we also know how to address it spiritually. Simply to say, the very most important thing, the thing that makes Christians Christians, is the death of Jesus for us uh, uh, and this external word that comes to us mm-hmm. in the promise. So uh, it's good to have these theologians there and to be able to identify them. So nice work, Evan. 400 points. <laughs> 400 points for Evan. That's terrific. Well, don't worry, Dr. Ross. This is your turn to, to get points when we play Answer the Question <laughs> As. And uh, this part of the game, we have six theologians. I'll read them off. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Charles Finney, Billy Graham, and Joel Osteen. And the six questions to be asked is, how do you know you're a Christian? What is the gospel? What are your church services like? And what is the main focus? 
what has been a major event in your life? What is baptism and what is the Lord's Supper? And how this works is is Pastor Wolfmuller and I have the Urim and Thurim here, our, <laughs> our, our digital Urim and Thurim. And <laughs> we will roll the dice for the question and theologian, and, and our honored guest, Dr. Rast, will, will uh, answer them according to that theologian for Table Talk Radio Points. All right. Now so. we need our addendum that this is not to be played at home. This is a dangerous game. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to let the kids loose on this game. We haven't included it in the Table Talk Radio home version because <laughs> answer the question as is only for trained expert theologians. Don't try this like Doctor Rast. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah>. Okay. Well, <laughs> I will read. Or excuse oh, me. Man. I will roll the dice for the question and then. Uh, why, why do I expect really bad things to happen right about now? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> okay, well, here it is. I'm going to roll, and uh, I got a four, and the question is, what has been a major event in your life? And I'm rolling here, and the number is two, oh. John Calvin. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Well, I've had a lot of major events <laughs> in my life. Um, God. Uh I love this game. This I, was, <laughs> I love it just because we get to hear people talk in the first person. As, as figures I, I, it's hard just to reduce myself to one because uh, the the major event in my life has been the fact that God has predestined me to salvation, I think. <laughs> uh, Classic. That's all that needs to be said in that so the major event in your life happened before the even the creation of the world. That's I love it. That's right. <laughs> oh, and, and 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 along the minor events that or, or supporting events that come along with that then are my are my reformatory work in uh, uh, Geneva, where something pretty important happened to me. I was you know I was fleeing France after uh, uh, really moving towards the evangelical confession, uh, having been influenced by Luther. In fact, in 1536, when I wrote the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I kind of modeled them on Luther's uh, 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 small catechism and uh, really took that as my cue. Uh, but the event that occurred as I was leaving France, uh, as I was passing through Geneva, Switzerland, uh, I was confronted by people who were also interested in the evangelical witness, and they told me that they wanted me to stay and teach them and really, I had intended to move on from there. So they told me that if uh, if I didn't stay in Geneva, God would hate me. And that really wouldn't do my election very much good, so I thought I'd better stay. I thought that might be an important witness or, or mark uh, as to something I should uh, should uh, do. So that got me stuck there. and I mean, that allowed me to serve in Geneva, and uh, I served there uh, for many, many years until my death. Uh, Revising uh, my book, The Institutes, uh, taking a, it really took on a new kind of form. It no longer reflected Luther's small catechism, but came to uh, reflect my own theological convictions. Uh, and and I really do have to say, even though I I know that uh, decree is uh, is a extreme importance, it's really my followers who run that out fully in terms of uh, making that the dominant theme within the Reformed tradition. But if you read my final edition of the Institutes from 1559, you'll see you'll see that that it's there. So, yeah. Do you do you approve of of what your followers have done with your works? I think they might have overdone it, uh, but uh, uh, in in bringing uh, the doctrine of election to the forefront, I treated it much later in my my uh, systematic theology. 
so that it could at least function for Christians as something of a comfort, even though there was always that question uh, that kind of circulated around it. But my followers made it uh, dominate everything in the Reformed tradition. They thought they were being more consistent than I was, but... uh, uh, you know, hey, I'm French. What do you expect? You want consistency? Give me a break. <laughs> All right, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna. I surrender. <laughs> I need to uh, award Dr. Rash with some points for that one. I'm gonna hit the random number generator, and you get 343 points for that answer. All right. So already Whoa. you're just not far behind me. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's play this again. All answer right. The question as I'm gonna roll the dice here and i rolled a number four again what has been a major event in your life all right and i rolled a number six that's joel Osteen. (laughs) (laughs) all right joel what has been a major event in your life well as i wrote about i can't remember if it was in my first or my second both both of which were enormous bestsellers uh those uh and which would make them something of a major event in my life in the first place uh, as I wrote in one of those books, uh, there was a time that I was going to the mall, and it was raining, and I prayed to God that he would open up a parking space for me right by the entrance to the mall, and he did it. So if you had enough faith, you would have a God who opened up parking spaces for you, too. It was in my first book. It was in my first book. After that, uh, after that probably the fact that... Uh, uh, stepping out in, in profound faith once again, my uh, congregation and I were able to take over the Compact Center in uh, Houston, and uh, from that uh, from that uh, place uh, have an enormous impact in terms of uh, gathering people together for worship services and then uh, uh, having the television show that goes out throughout all the world. Those are some pretty big events in my life. I think Joel, a seminarian gig line, doesn't have the. Um uh, doesn't have this kind of faith. He's been praying for someone to uh, please, please call our Who Wants to Date a Seminarian hotline, but no one has called you. Well, Indicating I, a lack of faith. I haven't tried the Joel Osteen way. I think I might, you know. All right. Well, I, I'm going to gonna give you 500 points off the bat for that one because that was... <laughs> there you go. 843. We have a couple minutes left. Let's, let's do it again. I'm going to roll the dice here. And uh, let's see what I get. I get a two. That is, what is the gospel? And answer this question as? Number three, John Wesley. Oh, very good. Well, um, one of the things I've noticed in, uh, in my own life is the, uh, is the real uncertainty and, and, and difficulties that I've experienced in my own trek to determining whether or not I'm a Christian. And... Uh, even having grown up in a clergy household, my father was a priest of the Church of England, although he at times was a bit nonconformist and would get himself into a bit of trouble. Uh, one of the things I've, I've struggled with would really be the better way to put it uh, is the, the question of whether or not I'm truly a Christian and whether or not I'm really saved and whether or not I really understand and believe the gospel fully. In fact, during my, uh, my days as a student at Oxford University, I and a, a number of my friends got together and uh, formed our a little Methodistic society, a holy club, in which we encouraged one another towards uh, living a life worthy of the calling of a Christian. But even with all that, I still just wasn't sure. And it just got worse for me. Uh, in, the, in the mid-1730s, I went to Georgia. I went from England to Georgia. And 
on the on on board ship during this trip, I was confronted with a group of people known as Moravians or Hernhutians or uh, Unit, the members of the Unitas Fratrum uh, or Zinzendorfians. You hear all these different names. These are folks with German background, uh, influenced by the, uh, the the great Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, uh, who uh, emphasized that really all we need to truly be Christians is to be is to find our place in the wounds and blood of Jesus. Find our place in the wounds and be covered with the blood of Jesus. But I didn't know if this applied to me or not, and and lived in abject terror and fear over God's judgment over against me. Uh, so when we're on board ship, here are these Moravians who are who who seemingly don't have a care in the world, uh, even in the face of, of a number of terrific storms. In fact, in one storm blew up. It was so bad we were all certain the boat was going to sink, and I'm I'm terrified of the imminent judgment of God that will find me likely cast into hell. And here are these Moravians on board ships singing hymns with one another and looking forward to their imminent uh, uh, in-gathering into the arms of Jesus. And I wonder, what do these folks have that, that I don't have? And let's, let's find out the answer to that question from John Wesley himself. Right at this commercial break, we're going to find out what happened. Don't go away. More Table Talk Radio after this. Talk Radio. For those who have tried everything else to get a good night's sleep. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. We're in the middle of hearing this uh, great story from John Wesley himself, as played by Dr. Rass, as a professor of, of Historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary and dean of academics. Now, uh, John, you, you were telling us that you were on this ship, a uh, terrible storm, and here you find these Germans who are, who are praising God in the midst. And, and, and where are you right now? I'm convinced that I'm, if I die in this particular state I'm in, I'm immediately going to find myself in hell because I'm, I'm that uncertain about uh, my status before God's eyes. And I remained in that uncertain state for several years, as a matter of fact. Even upon my return to England, I still just wasn't sure. Until in May 1738, I went to a gathering of Moravians in an upper room in Aldersgate Street in London. And there these Moravians were reading from Luther. And as Luther was read, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew that the love of God was for me. And so the gospel took me over. The gospel uh, just became this experience of the, of the love of God in its fullest sense that transformed my entire existence. I had learned all the doctrines. I had learned all the, uh, the formulas. I had even been ordained as a priest in the Church of England. But it wasn't until I experienced the gospel, until I experienced uh, this profound presence of Christ and his peace that I finally, finally got over that. that. Um, so all of you folks who talk about uh, the importance of doctrine and emphasize all these fine theological distinctions and that sort of thing, uh, don't sell short what is really, really important, and that's how you feel. 
That sounds familiar in, uh, from earlier this show. <laughs> All right. That came a little too easily to me, I think. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, this, all this criticism of Lutheran uh, pietism, I think, is a smokescreen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I always tell my students, I may be highly critical of revivalist preachers, but I act like them all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The the uh, nu- random number generator uh, produced the random number 299, <laughs> so we'll tack that on. <laughs> Your, I'm your really time. hoping that you roll a six this time if I want to have any chance of getting my buzzword. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, that's true. Okay, well, here we roll on, roll on the dice, and it's a five. What is oh. baptism? Oh, yes, okay, let me roll my theorem here. One. Oh! oh. All right. <laughs> well. Focus, concentrate. This is, yeah, this is so out of character for everything else I've said today. But let me take a deep breath and jump in. <laughs> I can think of nothing better to do than talk about baptism, because baptism is as pure an, uh, 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 an exhibition of Christ's gospel that one can find. For in it, this is the place where God is at work, delivering the individual from sin, death, and hell, and grafting that person into the kingdom of God, forgiving them all their sins, and uh, making them making that person his own dear child. Baptism is God's work on our behalf, where the merits of Christ, won through his suffering, death, and resurrection, are applied to us by grace, where we receive the gift of faith, where the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens us, sanctifies us, uh, along with the whole Christian church on earth. Baptism is gospel in the purest sense. All right. Well, I gave you 500 points for Joel Osteen at the up it at uh, 700 than for for Luther. I can, <laughs> I can hardly give you 500 for for Osteen than less for Luther. Where are you getting all of these points? 1,832 <laughs> points so far. All this right. is a runaway uh, train here. 1832. Uh, that was the year that that Gettysburg College was established in. Uh, Pennsylvania. Hey, I, you can't get extra points for stuff like oh, that. <laughs> I just learned that today in, in uh, church history four. <laughs> uh, I, I'm getting all these points, by the way, Pastor Wolfner, from all your friends on Facebook. <laughs> I, I gave them away to the friends on Facebook. I know they're I giving them, them to away. me. <laughs> I have real friends. You have Facebook friends. Ooh. <laughs> uh, okay. Now let's. <laughs> oh, all right. Evan we, and his endless quest to destroy Facebook. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to work. All our listeners apparently are dropping out of Facebook. No. <laughs> okay, rolling like the dice, playing people. another round. All right, here we go again. Roll the number one. How do you know you're a Christian? And the answer is three again. John Wesley. We had that. I'm going to yeah, roll, again. roll again. Yeah. Two. John Calvin. Ah, that's boring. I'm rolling again. Four. <laughs> Charles Finney. Oh, that's what I'm looking yes, for. There we go. That's what we like. I, it wouldn't be a complete show without me talking to, as Charles Finney, so, so get ready. <laughs> you have five minutes. I have five minutes. That may not be enough. The uh, How do I know that I am a Christian? My life was one of disinterestedness in respect to the Christian religion, largely. Though I came from a, a family with a pious mother, I, I simply didn't pursue... Uh, church matters, uh, and instead had dedicated my life as a young man to more worldly pursuits that would 
hopefully make me wealthy. And uh, so for the early part of my life, I spent in preparation for uh, being a lawyer, uh, learning to argue, putting together uh, cases, and uh, finding ways to persuade people to my point of view. And that, that did largely characterize my life for some time. However, I had a friend, uh, a minister friend, who was consistently pushing me to think about matters spiritual. And uh, though I resisted mightily, he was as determined to sway me to his position as I was to ignore what he offered. Until it came to the point where I simply said, I have to decide one way or the other. I must make a choice whether or not to follow God. And so I told my friends, leave me alone this weekend. I intend to weigh the evidence for myself, adjudicate this matter, and finally come to, to a decision one way or the other as to whether or not I would be a Christian. And I did. I spent a weekend with the Bible, reading the text, thinking about the claims that were made there, thinking about the judgments that uh, uh, were threatened for those who did not follow God, and for the blessings that were outlined for those who did choose him as their Savior, and, and tried to come to a point where I could make the final choice. But I couldn't. I couldn't. I kept being distracted by folks. They wanted to know if I had made the choice yet, uh, knocking on, my door, on the door of my apartment. Uh, they just wouldn't give me any peace. And so I did the only reasonable thing to do. I withdrew myself from the influence of everyone. One might go so far as to say the influence of God and man were both taken out of the equation. And I went out into the woods of upstate New York, and by myself I wrestled with the evidence. I wrestled with the questions. And finally I made a determination that I would choose Christ, that I would become a Christian. And I went back into town the little town of Adams, New York, and I told the, the people, my acquaintances and my colleagues, I said, I am now on retainer for the Lord. I have made that choice. Hmm. And uh, that happened. Uh, that transformed my life. I later on became a minister of the gospel. Uh, despite the fact that um, my colleagues said I should go to seminary, I said, I didn't need it. I really don't need to do this because I am a Christian. And I know I'm a Christian because I made the choice. And I venture that I could show my qualifications for ministry by leading other people to make that same choice. And so that is what I have been doing since. I've been presenting the evidence, laying it out before hearers, and then telling them that they must make the choice. In many ways, it's like an election. God has voted for your salvation. Satan has voted no, it's a tie. And your vote must decide the issue. If you decide rightly, then you are a Christian. Well, we have a, we have a couple minutes left, and since we have uh, Charles Finney on the line, uh, we might as well ask him a few questions. <laughs> um, how, how did people react as you would kind of go around and, and preach this same message to, to other people? Uh, it, the The response was remarkable. Uh, I I rose to the heights of. Uh, of uh, fame, uh, though not fortune, I, I oftentimes gave away the money that I made. I could have become rich like Joel Osteen, but I didn't. Um, I rather uh, I went out and I used this kind of imagery of either a law court making the decision about uh, whether or not you would pursue God, or or using the imagery of uh, voting for one's salvation as uh, as a, 
as a way of simplifying the demands of the gospel for people. And that's a key. You have to understand that God demands things of us, and that religion is a work of man, and it consists in this, obeying God. Uh, and boy, I'll tell you, people resonated to that. I started uh, my revivals from far upstate New York. Uh, later on, moved down to Rome and used the Erie Canal as a as a as a transportation route to get all over uh, the northern part of uh, the state of New York. Ultimately, becoming uh, the leader at the Broadway Tabernacle in New York City. And then from there, I received a call to be a professor of theology at Oberlin College in Ohio. And, you know, once I became a professor, I decided probably everybody needs a theological education before they become a minister, at least a theological education from me. I thought that would be a good way to go. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have. I want to thank Dr. Rass for, for playing the parts of all these, these theologians. I really appreciate it uh, so much. So hey, it's, it's my pleasure. pleasure, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio. No buzzwords got in today. Sorry. All right, we'll see you again next week on Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio, where the points are like the special baptism edition of Joel Osteen's magazine. It just doesn't mean much. <laughs> You've been listening to Table Talk Radio. The views expressed on this show are that of the hosts and do not reflect the views or opinions of this station. We would like to answer your questions concerning theology, the scriptures, or anything else. Send your questions to questions at tabletalkradio.org or leave us a voicemail message 866-851-5523 Be sure to check out our website tabletalkradio.org Thanks for listening and tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio